sermon this morning is entitled, The Clergy Can Marry. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 18. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand. And the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. You may be seated. Johns Hopkins was a businessman. He was a Quaker businessman. Today, if you go to the famous hospital in Baltimore that's named after him, as a person enters the Dome Billings administration lobby of the hospital, they will walk through the main rotunda where stands a ten and a half foot marble statue of Jesus Christ. If you go to Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital, you will see right there in the rotunda a huge marble statue of Jesus. That statue was donated in 1896 by William Wallace Spence, a Scottish immigrant and one of the wealthiest businessmen in Baltimore. The statue is an exact copy of Christus Consultor that Danish sculptor Bertel Thorsvalden made for Copenhagen's Fru Kirke in 1821. The day Hopkins opened, University President Daniel Gilman publicly asked for somebody to donate an exact replica of that statue. And the wealthy uh, businessman, the Scottish immigrant Wallace Spence, indeed donated that statue. Today, more than a century later, the statue still stands. It has been reported that throughout the years, Hopkins employees have rubbed the toe statue in passing so much so that that toe is, is worn out from, from all the touches. And patients often pray before it. You see, as Christians, you and I know that such a statue is a violation of the second commandment. God explicitly prohibits us from making any graven images, and we are certainly prohibited from praying before them, as many patients do before they enter the hospital. We can understand why they do, but it's nevertheless wrong that they do. Yet I bring up the statue in order to drive home a point. At one of the most recognized hospitals in the world, a statue of the great physician was intentionally intentionally placed. The placement was not uh, accidental. On the base of the statue are the following words. Come unto me all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. While the statue is merely marble, those words of Christ from Matthew eleven twenty eight still ring true. Unlike the lifeless statue, the true Jesus is still alive and He is still the great physician. Amen? To this day, the words of Isaiah the prophet are experienced by Christians all over the world. Jesus took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And today's account of Peter's mother-in-law being healed 
is found in all three synoptic gospels. Synoptic gospels refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is decisively different if you read his gospel. All three synoptic gospels contain this story. And together, they give us a better picture of what occurred. And so the timeless theological principle this morning, for you to take with you, is simply this. Jesus came to heal the sick and preach the gospel. And you might sit there and go, wow, okay, that's straightforward. I don't even need to write that down. I want you to think about it. I want this to sink into your hearts. There's a lot there. Jesus came to heal the sick and preach the gospel. Are you sick this morning? Do you have loved ones who are sick this morning? Jesus came to heal them. Do you know that evangelism is a priority? Jesus came to preach the gospel. In verse 14, we are told that Jesus entered Peter's house. The Gospel of Mark informs us that it was Peter and Andrew's house, although Matthew just says that it was Peter's house. The Gospel of Mark also informs us that John and James accompanied them into the house. Now, the fact that it was Peter and Andrew's house makes sense because Peter and Andrew, uh, Peter and Andrew were brothers. And the fact that John and James were with them makes sense too because they were among the earliest disciples. They were fishermen together. They were a small group that began together very early in Jesus' ministry. I raise this to bring out a point. If you read the Gospel of Matthew by itself, and then you later read Mark, and then you read Luke, you would... Be tempted to say, if you're not a careful reader, aha, uh, these gospel stories contradict. For, for here it says that only, uh, it was only Peter's house. Whereas here it says it was Peter and Andrew's house. Here it says that he entered with Peter and Andrew. Whereas this gospel says that there were four disciples with Christ. These gospel accounts contradict. And and the one thing you must remember in reading the gospel accounts is that the writers might be writing about the same story, but from a different perspective. Matthew doesn't mention anything about James and John. But the account does not contradict Mark's. James and John were there, but Matthew doesn't mention them. And that's not a big deal. Different reporters we report different vantage points. Just because Matthew does not mention them, does not mean that they were not there. Likewise, when you read about one blind man, or one angel versus two blind men, or two angels at the tomb, don't be alarmed. The stories are not contradicting, rather they are complementing. You see a lot of that in the Gospels. In fact, we would, I would argue that that, that bolsters the uh, credibility of the Bible because if everything agreed, you could easily accuse them of collusion uh, and merely just copying. But the Holy Spirit inspired each gospel writer to write the same story, but from different perspectives, but nevertheless, none of the stories contradict If you step back for a moment and you bring it all together, it makes perfect sense. It was Peter and Andrew's house. 
James and John were there as well, though Matthew does not mention. The silence does not mean they were not there. We must remember that we need to check our logic. The Bible is always correct. It is inerrant. Scholars agree that the disciples were young men at this point in the gospel narrative. If you just do the mathematical calculation, just figure out how long Peter lived uh, till his death, you can figure out that they were young at this point in Jesus' ministry. Any painting which shows an old apostle Peter with gray hair standing over his mother-in-law is historically inaccurate. Peter was a young man. And because of this young age, Peter probably wasn't married too long prior to this miracle. They were probably relatively newly wed. There is a very important point in verse 14 that we must not simply fly over. The text informs us that Peter's mother-in-law was lying sick of a fever. Well, what does this prove? Other than the fact that she was having a fever. Well, this proves with absolute certainty that the apostles were allowed to have wives. Mother-in-law means that Peter was married. Hence, when the Roman Catholic Church prohibits their clergy from getting married, 1 Timothy 4.1 states that they are teaching a grave error. The Bible says that marriage is good and ought to be received with thanksgiving. Listen to the Bible. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You see what the Bible says? So when the Roman Catholic Church says, no, priests can't get married because that would, that would soil the sanctity of the clergy, the office, the Bible says, no, marriage is good. Does not taint the clergy. Yes, there may be times when God calls certain individuals to lifelong singlehood, but we must not forget that God Himself instituted marriage and that Hebrews 13.4 states that marriage ought to be honored by all. The fact that Peter had a mother-in-law unequivocally demonstrates to us that he had a wife. Later in life, Peter took her along on his mission trips. Did you know that? Peter took his wife along on mission trips. The Apostle Paul corroborates this in 1 Corinthians 9.5. I want you to listen. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Do you see that there? See, in that verse, we see the Apostle Paul teaching us three very important things. Number one, Paul teaches us that the minister of the gospel does have the freedom and right to marry a woman who is a believer. This is not something that the Protestants just made up at the Reformation. This is not something that Luther wanted to do at the Reformation because he was burning with lust. No, that that is not true. The Bible states that clergy members have the right to have a believing wife. 
So when Roman Catholics say, no, the priest cannot marry, they are making up the doctrine of demons. That's what the Bible states. That's just simply not true. Notice that Paul clearly states that she must be a believing wife. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Here again, Christians are prohibited from marrying unbelievers. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 9.5, that ministers have the right to take along a believing wife. Christian ministers and lay people can marry, but only should marry believers. It is a sin to marry an unbeliever. Notice that Paul clearly states that it must be a believing wife. Second, Paul teaches us that the brothers of the Lord were married. What? Yes, Mary gave birth to Christ, but after she gave birth to her firstborn, Jesus Christ, which was a virgin birth, and she knew no man before that point, but afterwards, through her husband Joseph, she gave birth to Jesus' brothers and sisters. The perpetual virginity of Mary is another error taught by the Roman Catholic Church. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. They need to stop thinking that procreation within marriage is sinful and accept the fact that marriage is indeed honorable. Here's what the Bible says. Don't take my word for it. Matthew 13, 55-56. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas? That's a great trivia question. What are, what are the names of some of Jesus' brothers? There, there it is. James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. These are all brothers, biological brothers of Jesus. They come from the same mother, but obviously a different father because Jesus did not have a human father. But they all came from Mary. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. That's an error of the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, she didn't just stop with boys. They had sisters. Are, and are not all his sisters with us, says in Matthew 13, 56. When then did this man get all these things? So what do we see so far? Point number one, the Bible allows clergy members to marry. We must marry believers, but clergy members are allowed to marry. Uh, there's nothing holy inherently about being single, by the way. There was a movement among Christ, uh, in Christendom years back, and they made uh, the monastic communities, where these men would go off and, and these nuns would go into convents and take pledges of celibacy, thinking that being single would make them more holy, and the Bible says that's not true. Christians are allowed to marry. It is a blessing to be married. But we must marry believers. Secondly, the Bible states that the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary is not true. She was a virgin until she gave birth to Christ, but afterwards she had more children. And how? She knew her husband. Okay? She had uh, sons and daughters after Jesus. Through Joseph. Number three, the 1 Corinthians 9.5 passage teaches us that there were multiple apostles, along with Peter, who were married while serving in ministry. Peter was not the only one who had a wife. Hence, from Scripture, we can firmly conclude that although Paul and Jesus were themselves never married, 
both of them honored marriage and did not prohibit it. Marriage is honorable and it does not take away from the sanctity of the pastoral office. Indeed, it often enhances it. Some will argue on the other end of the spectrum and say that 1 Timothy 3.2 mandates that a man be married before he can serve as a pastor or an elder within the church of Jesus Christ. Where do they get that from? 1 Timothy 3.2 Regardless of where you fall in that Regarding that verse, 1 Timothy 3.2, marriage is a blessing from the Lord and the, and the Bible expects Christians to honor it. Barnes puts it this way in his notes on the New Testament. The mention of Peter's, wife mother, Peter's wife's mother proves that Peter either then was or had been married. The fair and obvi- obvious interpretation is that his wife was then living. Peter is claimed by the Roman Catholics to be head of the church. And the vice, uh, vicegerent of Christ. The Pope, according to their view, is the successor of this apostle. On what pretense do they maintain that it is wrong for priests to marry? Why did not Christ at once reject Peter from being an apostle for having a wife? How remarkable that he should set up as head, the head of the church, an example and a model to all who were to succeed him. But all this is human law and is contrary to the New Testament. Now going back to the text, I wouldn't make too much about Peter's mother-in-law lying sick in Peter's house. Without knowing all the details surrounding the situation, it is too much to infer that Peter lived with his mother-in-law. Maybe that was Peter's mother-in-law just visiting and she got sick while visiting. Maybe she was intentionally transported so that Peter could introduce her to Jesus. We simply do not have all the details regarding the situation to make any firm conclusion. Scripture, however, does make it clear that after marriage, a man must leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. They cannot keep living together. This decree by God allows the man to develop his God-given leadership potential and also allows him to start a brand new nuclear family. Marriage that don't, marriages that don't heed to this principle often suffer great harm. Now the Bible does state, on the other hand, however, that widows must be cared for by family members. But if a widow has children, here's 1 Timothy 5.4, or grandchildren... Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now if you have the King James Version, which I was raised on, the verse here translates the word grandchildren as nephews. Now that is an obsolete translation. Uh, the word in the Greek, I did a word study on this. Uh, the word in the Greek is the word ekgonos. It means a descendant of. If you know your Greek any to any degree, ek and gonos. Ek means out of. Gonos, if you see the word generation in that word, it means, it literally means to come out of a person. Or a descendant of. To be alive because of. 
The principle is simple and direct. And so, uh, I, I'm, I'm more in favor here of either the word grandchildren or, or descendants. But if a widow has children or descendants, grandchildren is fine as well because they would meet that criteria. I'm not really in favor of the word nephews here. In fact, I'm not in favor of it at all. It's, it's not the right word. As our parents age, if they are unable to care for themselves, especially financially, the principle here is that we are to care for them in the same way they cared for us when we were young and incapable of caring for ourselves. Yes, there, were, there was an age you couldn't care for yourself. And your parents took care of you. The Bible says that when they get old, you then are to take care of them. What that care looks like, however, requires prayer and wisdom. Dynamics change when a family is added into a family. A family member is added into a family. So, so it, what, what am I trying to say? I'm, I'm simply trying to say this. What does uh, this text in, in, in Timothy mean? What it means is, what the text in 1 Timothy 5.4 means to you is it requires a lot of prayer and wisdom. Does, does 1 Timothy 5.4 mean uh, uh, that our elderly parents must live with us? That's why we need to use wisdom and prayer. All I got to say is that when a person is added, the dynamics change. God in His wisdom made it the general principle that when you get married, you live apart from your, your, your parents on both sides. This allows you to establish a new family with new hierarchy and new authority and um, the nuclear family is, is firmly planted. Now as they age, and then you consider First Timothy, does that mean that the aging parent comes and moves in with you? Again, that requires wisdom. What we do know, however, is that Christians are not to allow the church to be financially burdened for caring for the elderly. And in verse 14, Peter is caring for his mother-in-law. The principle is simple. The, the kids or the grandkids ought to be the primary caregivers financially for those parents or grandparents who cannot care for themselves. Whether or not they live with you is something you pray about and you wisdom, use wisdom. But the principle is that you care for them. You care for them. You take care of all their needs. When they cannot care for themselves. You are not to allow the church to be burdened by their needs. Now if they don't have any relatives or descendants, Paul says for those widows who are truly widows, apparently there, there was a role include them into the role and care for them. Churches to care for those individuals with no one to help them. This account again demonstrates the authority of, uh, well, I'm sorry, let me just go back here. Uh, yes. This account again demonstrates the authority of Christ. Jesus, the great physician, enters the house and just as he did for the leper a few verses earlier, Jesus touches the mother-in-law's hand and the fever immediately leaves her. Now normally, a person requires a few hours to be f fully functional after recovering from a great fever. 
Yet Christ's healing is so complete that no recovery time is required. The mother-in-law is immediately serving Christ and being a hostess. That, by the way, is the proper response for all of us who have been touched and healed by Jesus Christ. If Jesus has healed your broken life, if Christ has touched you and set you free, then you are to immediately begin serving Him. That is the right response. Follow and love Him with all of your heart. Serve Him with all your might. Gratitude, seen through action, is expected on behalf of the disciples of Christ. Jesus then spends the rest of the evening generously casting out demons and healing the sick. Matthew quotes Isaiah 53 in verse 17 in order to show that Jesus fulfilled the expectation that the Messiah heals people. As the God-man, Jesus authoritatively casts out demons with a single command. And then Matthew records verse 18. And if you read Matthew 18 by itself, it would seem quite abrupt. It would seem as if, go ahead and read it. It would seem as if Jesus is healing the sick and all of a sudden a crowd forms and Jesus abruptly commands his disciples to go over to the other side. What gives? However, that's not what happened. If you complement Matthew's account with Mark's account, you would know that verse 18 occurred the next morning. It wasn't like Jesus was standing there and saying, okay, I'll heal you, I'll heal you, and then all of a sudden he sees a mob and goes, oh no, there's too many people, let's get out of here. That's not what happened. Although if you read Matthew by itself, you might be tempted to conclude that. But bring in Mark's account and you see a clearer picture. Jesus healed everybody that came to Him. He went to sleep, and the departure occurred the next morning. Mark 1.35-38 tells us what happened after Jesus went to bed that night. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there He prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. That's what happened. Jesus didn't abruptly leave. After spending the morning in prayer, he intentionally went to another town in order to preach the gospel there. I want to close this morning by making several points. First notice, Mark one thirty-eight. And in Mark 1.38, Jesus says He came into the world to preach in multiple towns. Although the context around the verse is primarily focused on Jesus' ability to heal and cast out demons, He nevertheless states that His primary focus in life is not to heal the sick, but to preach the gospel. There is an application for all of us here as we follow Jesus' lead. Yes, we are to do medical missions. Yes, we are to feed the homeless and invite them to church. Yes, we cast out demons in Jesus' name. We get our EMT licenses to help people. 
But above all, never ever forget your primary mission in life. You and I are left on this earth to preach the gospel to the nations. In fact, missions work without evangelism is not missions work. Call it humanitarian aid. Call it whatever you want. Call it medical help. But do not call it missions. Missions without evangelism is not missions. You and I are to join Jesus in making the Mark 138 declaration. What does Jesus say? He heals a whole bunch of people that night. He goes to bed, wakes up early and prays. And Simon Peter comes to him and says, Everyone's looking for you. And he says, Let us go into the next towns that we may preach there also. For that is why we are alive. Is that why you're alive? Is that why Jesus has sent you into this world? Is that why He keeps you alive? Jesus commanded you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. What is the gospel? Number one, God is holy, righteous, and just. He loves you, but He is also a God of justice. Therefore, number two, He must send all sinners to hell, and we are all sinners who deserve punishment from God in eternal hell. Number three, Jesus Christ. This is the good news, so pay attention. Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life and He died on the cross for your sins. And after dying on the cross and paying for your sins, three days later, Jesus historically resurrected from the grave. That's the holiday we're all going to celebrate as Christians all across the world next Sunday. Is the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is not a myth. We're not celebrating the Easter Bunny here. Jesus Christ rose from the dead so that if, number four, you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus as your Lord, God, and Savior, you will have eternal life. That's the gospel. That is our primary mission in life. Don't get bored with that. Some of us are like, oh, you know, I honestly, if for those of you who have some background in the medical field, you might feel more uh, productive bandaging somebody or trying to help heal someone then stand and give out tracts and see no fruit. You might feel that the latter is a worthless endeavor and that doing medical work is more productive. But let me tell you this. It takes faith to believe this. But let me say this. I believe this with all my heart. What Jesus shows us in this text is that as important as it is to heal people, it is far more important to preach the gospel. Jesus had a priority. His priority was always evangelism. What good is a healed body that will eventually die anyway if the soul is not saved. You think about that. It's great that there are people and doctors who dedicate their entire lives to healing people. But what good is a healed body that goes to hell? Finally, observe the humility and decision-making ability of Christ. Many preachers, I think, would have stuck around. I was reading the text and I thought to myself, man, you know, maybe probably be tempted to stick around there. Why? Because verse 18 states that there was a crowd. Preachers love crowds. Small crowds discourage us. It humbles us. (coughs) Big crowds. 
lot of preachers, I think, would have probably stuck around in this situation because a crowd had gathered. Jesus was getting popular in that town. Why leave? One might even speculate that His disciples probably thought the same, and that's why they came looking for Him. Crowds came, they said, where's, where's your rock star? Where's Jesus? And, and Peter's like, oh, we're getting popular here. Let me, let me, hold on a second, I'll go look for Him. Where's Jesus? They're all looking for Jesus. He's praying. What are you doing, Jesus? He's come, let's go. Can you imagine their surprise? When Jesus stands and looks at them and says, We're not going back. We're leaving. What? We're stars here, Jesus. Everyone is looking at me. I love the words. All men seeketh thee. <laughs> Everyone's looking for you, Jesus. I don't need that. We're not going back. Pack up, boys. We're leaving out. We're shipping out. Let's go. That's what Jesus was doing. Jesus prayed all night. And uh, He was wrapping up His prayer time with God, the Father. And that's why I think He knew exactly what to do next. When, when His disciples came and told Him to, that the crowd was looking for Him, He didn't hesitate. Jesus was a man on a mission. He knew exactly what to do. He didn't hesitate. He wasn't tempted. He said, pack up, let's go! Listen to me, folks. Listen. Unless we become men and women of wisdom and prayer, we will never know what to do next. Jesus did not waste His life. He was never in a hurry. Even when Lazarus was dying, He was not in a hurry. In fact, He intentionally stalled so that He would be glorified. Raise the dead. Let Lazarus die. That's a sermon in and of itself. I'm not even going there this morning. He was never in a hurry. Jesus was never in a hurry. He talked about a man with great time management. He knew where to go and where to go next. He knew where to go and when to go there. The key to his goal-oriented life was his prayer life. Here's what Mark 1.35 states. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Koreans have a word for this, they call it sebekido, right? Early morning prayer. They rise, rising very in early. How early, Jesus? How early? While it was still dark. Mark writes that for us. Just in case you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, 7.30 is still pretty early. No! While it was still dark. <laughs> He departed and went out to a desolate place and he prayed. There's something... You ever wake up that early for prayer? There's something special about that. You wake up, you know, it's still dark outside, everybody's sleeping. You feel like going back. Every, every muscle in your body tells you to go back to bed. You go, no, I, I want to pray. This is important. I gotta pray for my church members. I gotta pray for my family. I gotta pray for direction in life. So you get up while it's still dark. What do we see in that one verse? We see that Jesus absolutely prioritized his fellowship time with the Father. He woke up early, he sold out a quiet, desolate place. He wanted to be alone. Jesus was disciplined and self controlled. People are great. Let me say that. People are great. They're great. People are great. 
But you have to make time to be alone with God. You must not oversleep. Life is too short and time with God is too valuable. Can you afford not to pray? Can you afford not to pray? We all cannot afford not to pray. Four terms stick out of Mark 135 to me. Rising, departing, went, and prayed. Isn't that what we have to do? Rising, departed, went, and prayed. You got to rise up. Get up out of the bed. And then when you get up out of that bed, don't start, don't, don't pray in that bed. Depart. And then you got to go. You got to go out. Now sometimes I know you don't have places to go out, but I, I find that when you go out and that cold air in the morning hits you in the face, it wakes you up, right? Wakes you up. Rise, depart, went. And when you go, pray. Don't get distracted. Pray. That must be the hardest part of it all when you sit there and, and think about a million other things. But you just gotta sit there and you gotta you gotta focus. You gotta pray. Do you want to live a blessed life? Do you want to live on mission without wasting the few hours of life that you have? I, I put it that way because essentially, if you take seventy years or maybe the thirty-five years that I have left, or who knows what, you put it down. It's just a couple of hours, isn't it? Do you want to waste those hours? To make a commitment today and ask the Holy Spirit to help you with your prayer life. It all begins on your knees. You must depend for His guidance and His strength. The fact that we're here worshiping God is the answer to prayer. Ask God to help you rise tomorrow. Ask Him to help you depart tomorrow out of your bed. Go sit in your car and pray if you have to. Ask God to help you go somewhere desolate and alone tomorrow. You don't need Max McLean talking to you in the back. Get by yourself. And ask God to help you to pray tomorrow. So follow the lead of Jesus. Let's pray. Blessed Father, we thank you, God, for the opportunity.